Produced by PI Media. Abundant in volume yet scarce, soothing and relaxing yet bearing a devastating force. Defies the laws of physics and it can heal as much as it can harm. It is the source of life. I'm Idan and from Israel Newtech and PI Media, this is Waterline. Welcome back to Waterline. Throughout the ages, tribes, principalities and countries did their utmost to secure constant water supply to meet their needs. Controlling water sources ensured sustenance and growth. When water is abundant, sharing a water source can be easy. But once water becomes scarce, it can become a source of conflict. between tribes and countries, obviously, but it can also create rifts with violent consequences between groups within a country. Today's episode is all about managing water sources on a very large scale and how it can be a catalyst for war and lay foundations for peace. Autumn is in the air and the sun is rising over the desert. A river is flowing through the scorched land, oblivious to the human tension growing between two tribes located on its opposing banks. The Anozira tribe occupies the eastern bank. The Enrofilak tribe is on the western bank. The tension has been building for more than a decade and is now at a boiling point. Tensions between the tribes began when the elders of seven tribes, the Anozirians and Enrofilaks included, decided to divide the water in the river between them. The Anozirians did not appreciate the way in which the water was allocated, which depended on the tribe's size. They contested, but the elders were firm in their ruling. There was no place for a conflict between these two tribes, at least on the face of it. As a matter of fact, both tribes were cut from the same cloth. They shared the same beliefs and values, same gods, and even the same language. The disgruntled tribe seemed to accept the elders' ruling, but once the Enrofilaks began creating a dam on the river, the Anozirians saw it as a hostile move. and decided to protect what was rightfully theirs. The Anozirian's chief sent his finest warriors to the riverbank. It seemed that the conflict, which had been simmering for many years, might become a full-blown war in no time. You might think, I am talking about African tribes, Asian tribes, or even tribes in ancient Europe. But 
The tribes, so to speak, were actually the state of Arizona and the state of California. And on November 10th, 1934, a war between the states seemed almost inevitable. In 1934, after some years of surveying, California began construction on the Parker Dam on the Colorado River, not far from the border between California and Arizona. Arizona was fearful that California would steal their water and inhibit Arizona's growth. The building of the dam began on the Californian bank as troops from Arizona's National Guard Infantry Unit were situated on the opposite bank. Their mission? To obstruct any building operations on the Arizonian bank of the Colorado River. They even utilized two ferry boats, thus creating, for a very brief time in history, Arizona's Navy. Unfortunately, lacking the skills of seamen, when they took to the water to inspect the progress on the Californian bank, they got stuck and had to be rescued by the enemy. In this water war, no guns were fired, no casualties recorded. But the work on the Parker Dam did stop. It resumed only after the federal government intervened and the U.S. Secretary of Interior settled the issue. Arizona's National Guard troops went back to their barracks and the Parker Dam was completed in 1938. It created Lake Havasu and till this day drinking water is pumped to Southern California as well as to the cities of Phoenix and Tucson in Arizona in addition to providing hydroelectric power to California, Arizona and Nevada. And yet, the Arizona-California water war never really ended, albeit a war fought with pen and paper and courts, not with guns and munitions on the ground. The legal battles over water allocation between the states kept going on throughout the 20th century and spilled over into the 21st century. There is a fundamental fact shared with us by Oded Distel, head of Israel Newtek. We know that water do not recognize uh, borders and uh, differentiation between people. And since water is so important in all aspects of our life, therefore it calls for cooperation between nations, people, organizations. It's a must. Water knows no borders. However, can you tell your water sources from your political boundaries? Seth Siegel, author of Let There Be Water, Israel's Solution for a Water-Starved World. I would say to everybody who's listening, close your eyes, and whatever country you're from, I know your podcast is listened to very widely, but if you're in the United States, let's say, close your eyes and imagine where Florida is, or imagine where California is, or imagine where, you know, New York is, or Texas. It wouldn't be very hard for you to imagine that. Likewise, you could pretty easily figure out the political boundaries. If I were to say to you, now close your eyes and imagine where the water sources are, I wonder how many people could identify the location of rivers. Even in Israel, where it's a small country, I would bet that very few people could tell you where the location is of most of those rivers. And that's surface water where you can see, not groundwater, it's called uh, you know, aquifers. 
where you can't see it. We have trained ourselves to think in a political dimension about boundaries, whereas we would have served ourselves far better had we divided the world into watersheds and we managed the water that way. And that is exactly what happened in post-World War II Europe after the political meltdown, heavily understated, since water knows no borders, the political entities that lie within the water basin of the river Rhine and its tributaries, mainly Western Europe's countries, had to come together to solve a problem affecting all of them. In July of 1950, not even five years after the war ended, the ICPR, the International Commission for the Protection of the Rhine, was established to facilitate, first and foremost, a dialogue. Dr. Taber Stotter of the ICPR. The ICPR helped, I think, in the 1950s for the countries in the Rhine catchment to come together and discuss the issues which were on the table, which was basically the pollution of the Rhine. So it was only five years after the Second World War, so there were still resentments between the states, of course, but they learned over the first decades um, to work together to have a common goal just to make the situation along the Rhine better, and that helped a lot. And they agreed to, for example, build wastewater treatment plants, which improved the situation really a lot. Tammy Shaw is the Senior Deputy Director General for Regulation at the Israeli Water Authority, a person with a broad overview not only when it comes to water in Israel. She knows a thing or two when it comes to the water issues that Israel's neighbors confront, especially Jordan, as water plays a key role in the peace treaty between the countries. I posed a simple question. Water can facilitate a dialogue. True or false? Great truth. Uh, not only dialogue, but also um, it's a bridge that can bridge over gaps in many other sectors. I think that the strength of Israel with water gives it a lot of tools to use with our uh, neighbors. All of them has water scarcity in them. I think that with the peace treaty with Jordan, this is a good example, one of the anchors of this peace treaty was the availability of Israel to supply water to thirsty Jordan. And especially in the last years when there are more than a million refugees from Syria to Jordan and Jordan has the same droughts that Israel has, but does not have the same developed systems and the way to produce the water that we do in, in our way. It's very much uh, relied on the water that Israel supplies to it. And although the situation of water in Israel is not easy, we make sure that we bring Jordan every drop that we have to by the peace treaty and even more than that. Zohar Inon is the CEO of Hagichon, Jerusalem's water and wastewater utility company. In the late 1990s, he worked for the budget department of the Israeli Ministry of Finance, where he took part in negotiations with Israel's neighbors regarding water issues. Water has like a veto right that if you don't supply it, you cause stress. And if you don't have sewage systems that are working properly, you can cause real public health challenges and you will cause eventually stress. 
So water is a very basic issue that needs to be set properly, no matter borders, no matter populations, no matter what. People are dependent on water. You know, you can't mobilize water through the web or through the internet. You need really to supply the material, the water. Everyone needs water. Seth Siegel. If it's difficult developing water issues within a country because of politics and economics and historical interests and so forth, it's all the harder in a regional setting. Add to that stresses of greater population, a desire for more exports, and less water flowing. And you have something very combustible. One of the themes I have in my book is that water has often been a source of Of conflict. In much of the world, what's happened is that people who are upriver of another party start damming that water to the detriment of the party downriver. Now, if it's within one single country, well, there's a legal system usually, or there's a dictator usually, that will resolve the issue pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. What happens is when it's transboundary water, you add into the already difficult mix sometimes the antagonisms of neighbors to each other. So, for example, I mean, this is not necessarily antagonist, but Turkey is upriver of Syria and Iraq on the Tigris and Euphrates river system. Well, that's going to be a problem because Turkey is growing. They need more water, and they're going to use more water. Or the Nile River. In 1922, the British, who were the imperialists, decided that Sudan and Egypt would be the only takers of the Nile River water, but there are many other countries that are along the, the river system. Ethiopia is importantly along the system. They have a population equal to Egypt's touch more, and they are, have been a very poor country, and they have a desire to now break out. They need water to do that. If they, and they're upriver of Egypt, if they start taking large amounts of water out of the Nile, well then, You would think that this will be a crisis for Egypt, and it will be in current terms. At one point, they said they would go to war with, with Ethiopia over this. We see with Israel that water can also be a source of conflict resolution. I use a phrase in my book, hydro-diplomacy. And hydro-diplomacy is the idea that water and water technology can be used to open doors and build relationships. Israel is in a semi-arid region. Water is scarce. For that exact reason, Israel sees water as a critical component in its relationship with its neighbors. Zohar Inon plots the main freshwater sources in Israel. We have three natural uh, resources of water, the Sea of Galilee, the mountains uh, aquifer, and the coastal plain aquifer. The mountains aquifer, which is the main natural resource that we have, we share it with uh, Judea and Samaria. which is today under the control of the Palestinian Authority. And of course, there's no borders in the aquifer. It's just the same aquifer. Part of the peace accord with the Hashemite kingdom, with Jordan, there is a paragraph dealing with water, water supply from the Sea of Galilee. Israel supplies Jordan from the Sea of Galilee. In the last years, we're suffering from serious drought year by year, and we're still... obliged and committed to the peace accords, supplying precious water to the Jordanian kingdom. And uh, this is the case that what we're doing with the Palestinian Authority. People should know that Israel is supplying much more water to the 
Palestinians' cities and villages than it is committed to according to the peace agreements. You don't want your neighbor to be thirsty. Eventually, it will have uh, all kinds of uh, implications. When it comes to hydropolitics, it's not just between nation states. It's within countries about you know, the right of use. Who can use more? Industry, agriculture, households. Do you know of countries that use this as a lever? Well, it's true that in the past, also in Israel, the water sector mainly served agricultural needs. And in every country, in France, in England, the farmers, the agriculture are a very powerful sector, or at least they were in the past. The more the country gets industrialized or its economy is based on services and high-tech and things like that, the power of the agricultural sector is getting less and less powerful impact on the water sector. And then it can be designed and developed in a more rational way. But the economic debate on different tariffs to the agricultural sector and the industrial sector and the household and who is subsidizing who, it's a really a political debate. I think that, of course, as an economist, if you want to subsidize a sector, you should do it with different mechanisms, not through breaking or making the water tariff mechanism like a dirty mechanism, because water is a precious uh, material. It's partly renewable, not all the time. And if you want to have a sustainable water sector, it has to have the right mechanism of economic signals to all the different type of players that, Of the country of the water sector which means uh, tourism industry agriculture the municipal sector and all the type of different uh, players and consumers now if you want to subsidize agriculture do it through governmental budgets do it through giving sectors subsidies not through the water but actually through paying them uh, salaries for keeping our land green and not through the water because then you get to all kinds of situation of over pumping the aquifers of uh, growing crops that uh, are not economical and not uh, water efficient crops if the tariff of the water signals you the real value of the water let's <coughs> talk about a country that did not work according to your uh, recipe and The Syrian upheaval started as a civil protest over water. As uh, we said, if you don't supply sufficient amount of water to your population, you will cause unrest. This is what happened in the south of Syria. If the water issue was challenged properly by the Syrian government, maybe they had a good chance to have a less violent war going on there. When people don't get uh, water, they get crazy. On December 17th, 2010, Muhammad Bouazizi, a young Tunisian street vendor, set himself on fire to protest against the actions of his local and national government. His act ignited what is known today 
as the Arab Spring. Authoritarian regimes in the Arab world were challenged by citizens who protested fiercely against their governments. Each country had its own story. The triggers were different, but the outcome was the same. Civil unrest which, according to the oppressing regimes, had to be stopped. Bouazizi died of his injuries after three weeks, on January 4th, 2011. By the end of January, Algeria, Jordan, Oman, Egypt, Yemen, Djibouti, Sudan and Syria all needed to contend with major demonstrations. The oppression of citizens in these countries instigated the upheaval. But in Syria, Oded Distel points out a direct connection between the issue of water and the Syrian civil war. The first demonstration of the Syrian Spring, if you will, was recorded on January 26, 2011. The tragedy in Syria is kind of a, a red flag for all of us. All the tragedy in Syria started over, over water issues in a very, uh, I would say, innocent way. Farmers that could not irrigate their crops protested against the Syrian government in a very modest protest. Later on, everything went crazy and all those radical uh, movements took over. But the, the beginning was over this issue. And it's important to note what caused this situation. And it's not an Israeli trying to rewrite history. No, 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 no. This is a, a known uh, fact by researchers uh, all over the world. And it is not an issue that is related to Israel. You know, there is a notion by many people around the world to look at water as an obvious thing. We're going to open the tub and we're going to have water. We're going to see the, the river that flows next door and it's going to be there forever. We have aquifer and we're going to use the pump and we're going to get water and everything is fine. So it's important to say it is not obvious. What happened in Syria for about 50 years, the regime the uh, political uh, leaders, mainly Assad, the father, in a way, and I, I, it's, a, it's a strong statement, but I think it is 100% correct, sacrificed water management in order to gain political stability. It means that the agricultural sector could use as much water as they like and keep them in villages and produce food for the Syrian economy. It makes perfect sense. You want food for your people. I don't see where the problem is. The problem is that the farmers overused the water resources. And when the years of drought came, there was a series of few years of drought from 2006 to 2010. And on top of that, there were disputes between Syria and Turkey over rivers and dams. All of it together with the 40 years of total mismanagement of the water resources, everything together collapsed in this specific point of time and triggered what happened in Syria. As of the end of 2017, nearly half a million people lost their lives. 
Syria's population prior to the war was roughly 22 million people. Today, due to the war, there are more than 6 million people who are displaced, seeking refuge within Syria, and more than 5 million other Syrian refugees who fled the country, mostly to Turkey and the surrounding Arab countries, and to Europe as well. More than 11 million Syrians in total fled their homes. Just imagine that the entire population of both London and Chicago combined left their cities. Not a single person on Oxford Street. No one down at the waterfront overlooking Lake Michigan. What I'm trying to say is that we all have to look at the tragedy in Syria and learn the lesson. And the lesson is that we must manage water resources properly all over the world. I'll be the devil's advocate. Mm -hmm. It sounds to me that you're fear-mongering and that you have some vendetta against the Syrian regime and effectively you might benefit as an Israeli from the fact that the Assad regime collapsed. No. So human suffering is a human suffering and uh, people are people doesn't matter, Syrian, Israelis, Brazilian, wherever they are. On top of that, it is definitely our interest that uh, Syria is a well-economic, developed, stable country. It's uh, 100% also an Israeli interest. So I put aside this uh, idea that uh, Israel gain anything from what is going on there. And about the issue of, uh, of fear, no, uh, unfortunately, I'm describing a situation, and I'm describing a situation that uh, should concern every person on earth, and uh, it is a very dark scenario, but it is a scenario that can happen, and uh, unless we change the way we manage uh, this issue and the way we look at it, I'm afraid the Syrian case can be duplicated in other places around the world. I just point out that it is not uh, a theoretical scenario. It is a scenario that unfortunately uh, we see it uh, just uh, next door. Water can take us to the two extreme points. Everybody is afraid of war over water. We can negotiate and we can have discussion and cooperation over water. And obviously the, uh, the ideal way would be for people to have water as something that brings them together and creates the uh, positive dialogue between them. Water as a substance in its purest is something that brings people, material, ideas together. I know it is very difficult when you deal with politics, if we live for a minute the philosophical point of view and come back to reality. From a political point of view, it's a challenge if in the past water was a closed pie, we had an amount of water that we had to distribute between different users. And nowadays we live in an area that we can create water, we can manufacture water, which takes a very big shadow of those future negotiations between nations that have to share water. There is a solution, technological solution, economical solution for water which is very good news of the last several years. The border between Israel and Jordan 
passes through the Dead Sea right in the middle, and the Red Sea's cul-de-sac is split between the countries as well. And as water knows no borders, the discussions on water promotes more than just a dialogue. It enables creative problem-solving between nations. In combination with Israel's ability to manufacture water from desalination and treated wastewater, water is no longer a source of conflict. It becomes a geopolitical stabilizer between Israel and its neighbors. Tami Shaw. The water that Israel manufactures is distributed to the Israelis, the Palestinians, and the Jordanians. Yeah, definitely by quantities. So if we would not desalinate the water, only use our natural resources, they're all utilized. We have nothing more to supply from. So all the additional water that are supplied in the area, both for Israelis and Palestinians and Jordanians, must come from desalination. There's no other resource. The new project that is talked about between Jordan and Israel is a desalination plant that is going to be built on the Red Sea. On the Jordanian side, in Aqaba, it's going to supply water both for Jordan and for the Arava, the southern desert of uh, Israel. What's nice in it is that it's also environmental in a sense that the brine of the desalination is not going to go back to the Red Sea, but is going to be conveyed all the way to the Dead Sea. And it's actually going to help the drop of the level of the Dead Sea of the last years, which makes the Dead Sea shrink and a lot of environmental hazards because of it. I think this is very, very crucial for the economies of the countries we are discussing And as Seth Siegel said, there will not be any strong economy in this area without enough available water for it to survive. Seth Siegel. War and conflict is so much more expensive than is the smart approach. And that's, again, I go back to what Israel has done. I mean, think about this. Israel not only provides a self-sufficiency in fruits and vegetables for its own population and on-demand, high-quality water. Israel provides more than half of the water that the Palestinian Authority provides to the Palestinians in the West Bank. It provides a significant amount of water to Gaza. It provides a very significant amount of water to the Kingdom of Jordan. So it is, it is exporting water, and it's only able to do that because it's used smart technology. Were it not for that, Israel would be in a battle with the neighbors over water every day. It changes the dynamic of the region. And I'm going to make the argument that rather than fighting over water, whether it's one state to another, there's opportunities now to start thinking about water in a completely different way by adding technology. Now, there will be a cost to this, an economic mm-hmm. cost to this, but there's an even larger economic cost to war or dislocation or poor quality water that affects people's health. By the end of 2015, humanitarian donations from around the world dedicated to Syrian refugees, totaled a staggering 17 billion U.S. dollars. Aid agencies forecast the need for an additional sum of 3.4 billion U.S. dollars to sustain the Syrian refugees throughout 2018. And we haven't even talked about the impact this crisis has had on neighboring countries and communities. Not to mention what's in store for Syrians on the day after.
The Arab Spring was examined and researched from many perspectives, politically, financially, economically, militarily, socially, and so forth. Every aspect scrutinized. As Odette Distel and Zohar Yinon mentioned, the research regarding the uprising in Syria found that the severe drought in the country, combined with the ill-advised water use policies of the Assad regime, led to diminished agricultural yields. In turn, these factors drove 1.5 million Syrians from the rural parts of the country to cities. Stresses were inevitable. It is true that even if there had been no water crisis, another issue would have sparked the civil war in Syria. The demonstrators called for democracy and political reforms. Syria was a country governed by an ethnic minority, the Alawi Muslim faction. As with all authoritarian regimes, Assad's was infamous for its use of the most vicious secret police force in the Arab world. The oppression was brutal and cruel. Maybe it was only a matter of time for a revolution to erupt. And yet, water will always be remembered as the spark that ignited the Syrian civil war. So are we able to finish this on a lighter note? Yes, yes, definitely. And, and the, the idea is that we just need to be aware of the situation. We need to push for cooperation. And the rest of the ingredients exist. We can manufacture water. We have the ability to better manage water on a national and international scale. So the answer is absolutely uh, yes, it just depends on us. Human beings, that is. Human beings, that's it. Waterline is brought to you by Israel Newtech and is a PI Media production.